Well, open your Bibles as we come to our last part of a four-part series in Psalm 90. Psalm 90 is where we're going to find our time this morning, the Psalm of Moses, as we've been going through this magnificent psalm for the last few times together, and today we conclude it in its wonders. Chuck Swindoll, in his book, Moses, A Man of Selfless Dedication, once quoted a poem that he used in explaining the life of Moses to his readers, and the poem goes something like this. Pain knocked upon my door and said that she had come to stay, and though I would not welcome her but bade her go away, she entered in, and like my own shade she followed after me, and from her stabbing, stinging sword no moment I was free. And then one day another knocked most gently at my door. I said, no, pain is here, there's no room for any more. And then I heard his tender voice, it is I, be not afraid. And from the day he entered in, ah, the difference he has made. Though life is full of pain and affliction all throughout the 120 years that Moses lived his life on earth, there came a time when even the great man of God, Moses, needed to face the fact that the reality of life under the sun was not always what he wanted it to be. Knowing that God and God alone was the one that could take the pain and the failure and turn it into passion for the future, he comes to us in this psalm and writes for us these wonderful words as a prayer for us to know and to be aware of. And so as I said, today we come to this psalm, Psalm 90, in our fourth and final look at this magnificent song of Moses the only psalm that Moses ever wrote, the only psalm that bears his name upon it. And because of Moses' authorship, Psalm 90 is probably the only psalm that bears the title of being the oldest of all the psalms. That being said, we still don't have the reason stated outright why he wrote this psalm, as if God had commanded him to write this prayer. We don't have the circumstances that state beforehand, as we have seen in other Psalms and other superscriptions, what prompted this extraordinary event. We only have this statement at the very beginning of Psalm 90, a prayer of Moses, the man of God, to tell us what this psalm is and to help us understand exactly what was the reason for its composition of this inspired text. Albert Barnes, who is a commentator of the last century, said, it seems then not improper to regard this psalm as one of the last utterances of Moses, one of the last things that Moses ever said. So if you've been with us in our study thus far, you know that we have seen here in this psalm, Psalm 90, five undeniable truths, five undeniable truths that consumed Moses' mind at the end of his days, five undeniable truths that filled his heart and prayer with meditations and reflections that we can focus on today and to help us for our prayers as well. And I've said this before, I'm going to list them again for you. These five truths that we have seen, I'll go through them quickly, are the eternality of God is evident, the brevity of man is certain, the severity of sin is obvious, the fragility of life is eventual, and the necessity of prayer is vital. And to say it more simply, I think I could put it this way, God is transcendent, man is transitory, sin is tragic, life is temporary, and prayer is treasure. So let me review where we are in this study, and then we'll conclude our marvelous time in this wonderful psalm. If you're taking notes, please note that the first undeniable truth that Moses gives us here, the first undeniable truth that consumes him and his heart as he starts to write this prayer is, number one, the eternality of God is evident. And we get that from the first two verses of Psalm 90. He writes, Lord, you have been our dwelling place from generation to generation. Before the mountains were born or you brought forth the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. The way he starts this prayer is by saying God is transcendent. 
before he begins even his petitions in this prayer, before he starts to list out all the needs that he has and all the people of God, what they need, he starts by just echoing back to God what is true about God before he requests anything from God. In this way, it's in perfect alignment, as we have noted with the Lord Jesus Christ in his pattern of prayer, when he taught us the disciples' prayer and told us at the very beginning that we should start with our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. The pattern here is the same even in Moses' prayer, that when our hearts are full of need, when we come before God with our eyes closed in prayer, that it is wise for the believer not to necessarily just rush to the Savior with request hand over foot, but instead to settle his or her heart, to allow ourselves to focus our thoughts, and then, of course, to utter forth undeniable truths to God that shape our thinking about God and to remember who He is as we pray. Next, we see not only the eternality of God is evident, but we commented last time about the brevity of man is certain. And we see that in verses 3 through 6. Let me read them for you. Verse 3, you turn man back into dust and say, return, O sons of men, for a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it passes by or as a watch in the night. You have swept them away like a flood. They fall asleep. In the morning, they are like grass which sprouts anew. In the morning, it blossoms and sprouts anew. Toward evening, it withers away and dries up. Now we see a shift in the wonderful composition of this psalm. And Moses starts to pray in a different way. He moves away from the transcendent nature of God and now into the transitory nature of man. And he starts to speak about God is eternal, but man is brief. These two realities are very, very important to us as we pray. Why do I say that? Because, Because perspective gives you clarity. Perspective gives you clarity. When the truth comes, the truth changes everything. Before you list your grievances before God, before we even list those things that you need from Him, before you say, give me this or give me that, before you feel entitled to negotiate with God about your life, it's important that you follow the practice of Moses here and first align your priorities with what it is that you know is the bigger picture of life. What is that bigger picture? That God will always be but there won't always be you. There won't always be I, but, but we know God is forever. To say this in a more theologically accurate way, God is transcendent, but you and I are transitory. You and I are transitory. Yes, you will live forever in eternity. Yes, you're going to have a resurrection body, and we've covered that before, either in heaven or hell. But regardless to the passing nature of the day-to-day of our lives, we remember that we are on the scene for a very short time, but God will always be there. So no matter how successful you are in this moment of your work, of your family, of your interactions with others and your ministry opportunities, no matter how horrible you are in dealing with your family and maybe a specific area of your life, Moses is saying from his perspective, everything turns to dust anyway. And it's God who does this. And it's God who is eternal. So we see the eternality of God is evident. The brevity of man is certain. And then next, we saw the severity of sin is obvious. The severity of sin is obvious. And we see this in verses 7 through 9. For we have been consumed by your anger and by your wrath we have been dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days have declined in your fury. We have finished our years like a sigh. This is Moses' commentary back to God in prayer about what he understands the tragic nature of sin to be. Namely, that sin is tragic. It's severe. It should be obvious to all, especially to the Israelites and Moses' care. And I say it should be evident to them because sin literally consumed the children of God as they traveled round and round in the desert for 40 years. And the reason I use those words is because that's exactly what 
He says about God's anger and wrath here, he says that they were consumed with them. They were consumed for the sin that they had committed against God. They were first consumed by sin, and therefore God consumed them, both internally in their thoughts and imaginations and outwardly in their sounds of dismay. God showed Moses and Israel the severity of sin, what sin does, and how to prune it from our earthly existence. Being able to see your sin, by the way, as the catalyst for God's discipline in your life and not blaming God for what's happening to you because of your sin is a very special insight given to those who have learned humility. And humility is usually learned the hard way. So Moses here, maybe not intentionally perhaps, but he's revealing to us a pattern, if you can notice, a pattern of prayer He's teaching us that we must be in our hearts before we request anything from our lips, that we should be focused on the realities of life, the realities of God, the realities of sin, the realities of man, and then have that repeated attitude in us as we work through the very issues that we are going to see here. So the eternality of God is evident, the brevity of man is certain, and the severity of sin is obvious. We saw that last time. Next we see the fragility of life is eventual, and that comes in verses 10 through 12 of Psalm 90. As for the days of our life, they contain 70 years, or if due to might, 80 years. And yet their pride is but labor and wickedness. For soon it is gone and we fly away. Let me go on. Who knows the power of your anger and your fury according to the fear that is due you? So teach us to number our days that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. Now, if you were with us the very first time that we opened up this psalm, Psalm 90, you would remember that In verse 12, that's where we spent the majority of our time on the very first lesson, because this is the first petition that we come to in this entire psalm. So teach us to number our days that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. But what Moses is concerned here in his prayer, this first petition of the prayer, is that those who claim God, those who say that God is their God, understand that all men die regardless of their health, regardless of their wealth, regardless of their prosperity. They should be, those men should take some sanctified time to look at their life, to look at how fragile life is, how, how incredibly tragic it is not to approach life with that simple equation of knowing that we, the born again, will someday die. You're not left with Uh, time that you know of. You only have so many months, so many moments, so many minutes, so many micro measurements of time that you ought to plan out the time you have left and then use that as a way to present to God a heart of wisdom. Which brings us to our last reality this morning that Moses reveals, and this is one that we have not yet seen, and this is where we'll spend the majority of our time this morning, and that is The necessity of prayer is vital. The necessity of prayer is vital. Not as the eternality of God evident, the brevity of man certain, the severity of sin obvious, and the fragility of life eventual, but the necessity of prayer is vital. And we see that in verses 13 through 17 that ends the psalm. Moses writes, Return, O Yahweh, how long will it be? And be sorry for your slaves. Oh, satisfy us in the morning with your loving kindness that we may sing for joy and be glad all our days. Make us glad according to the days you have afflicted us and the years we have seen evil. Let your work appear to your slaves and your majesty to their sons. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish for us the work of our hands. Establish the work of our hands. Here, after 12 verses of going through meditation and preparation, is finally culminating in this very moment where we have reviewed essential truths about God under heaven. We have reviewed how God turns prayer 
for us into moments where we go before God and recognize who He is and who we are first, but then after establishing the everlasting quality of God in light of man's transitory nature, and after establishing the sin of man lies before God openly and vividly, we can't hide from Him, and after acknowledging the briefness of life on this earth for every single man, woman, and child that has ever lived, Moses now shifts from confessing universal truths to God about the totality of life in the most open, plain way he possibly can to now petitioning the all-powerful Yahweh for things that only God can provide for the believer in its most basic necessity. And it's here in this list of six petitions that we actually see Moses' mind and what it is that he wrote for, the reasons he wrote this psalm in the first place. So let me kind of break down these petitions for you. Very, very important. I'm going to do it in a general way first, and then we'll come back and get some of those petitions in a more specific way as we go along. So first, please notice that the actions that Moses asked of God. These are actions that he asked of God on behalf of Israel, namely to return, to be sorry, to satisfy, to make glad, to make God's work appear to Israel, and to favor and establish their life's work. And before we cut into the details of examining all of that, there are some things that we have to admit, namely at the very forefront, that there are some things that only God can do and no one else. There are some things that only God can do and no one else, and therefore we must go to Him in prayer. When push comes to shove, there are some things in life that just cannot be pleaded for to anyone else other than the Savior of the world. When you need compassion for your soul, there's no one else to go to but God. When you need real satisfaction for your soul, you don't go to the bank, you don't go to the travel agent, You don't go to the bar or the amusement park or the internet or the shopping mall or wherever it is that you might go. You don't go anywhere else because there's no one else to approach except God himself. And when you desire gladness and joy and hope and favor, you don't go to your spouse or your children or your pastor or your boss or your government for those most important needs. You must go to the one who has the power to call your soul back to the dust from which it's made and beg mercy from him who holds the stars in his hands. Jesus said it this way, My friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have no more they can do, but I will show you whom to fear. Fear the one who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him, Luke 12. And so Moses, this man of God who has shouldered the weight of the people of God squarely on his shoulders for 80 years, now shifts his attention away from acknowledging universal truths about God, his eternality, universal truths about man's transitory nature. And now he places all of his attention on the reason he began to pray in the first place. And that is namely to gain from Yahweh that which can only be gained from Yahweh, which only He can provide, namely grace. Grace. He comes before God for unmerited grace, undeserved favor, unmerited goodness beyond anything else He could ever ask or think. He says it most clearly when He says in the Legacy Standard Version, verse 17, let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us. Some translations, let the beauty of the Lord say, but it means agreeableness, it means splendor, goodwill, grace. So why use the word favor? Why use the concept of grace here in his petitions? Because man returns to the dust without God, verse 3. So here Moses asked that God might return to man. Verse 7. Because Israel has been consumed and all their days have been declined in God's fury. So here, verse 13, Moses asked that Yahweh might be sorry for his slaves. Because human life withers in the evening of our existence, verse 6, 
we see here, Moses asked Yahweh might satisfy his saints in the morning, verse 14. Because man's days are so short that he needs to be taught to number his days, verse 10, Moses here asked that those same days might be filled with joy because God's anger is heavy upon this generation, verse 11. Moses asked that God's loving kindness might bring them gladness. And so each one of these petitions, as they are brought before God, in light of the present condition of Moses and the people, Moses pleads for grace. Please, God, give us favor. Please, God, give us unmerited favor. Please, God, give us the kindness that we know we don't deserve in light of all that we have done. So this section is saturated with grace, saturated with grace. And so should your prayers be, as so should mine. C.S. Lewis is known for saying, I pray because I can't help myself. I pray because I'm helpless. I pray because the need flows out of me all the time, waking or sleeping. It doesn't change God. It changes me, end quote. That's why we have to pray for grace. When Moses prays, he does so because he too knows he can't help himself. He too knows that he is helpless. Moses prays because he's not trying to change God. He knows God doesn't change. He is praying about God's eternality and sin's severity because rehearsing these truths in his mind remind him of who he is first and foremost. So he prays so that he himself can change before he asks God to do what only God and God alone can do, and that is to change his people. And that means to give them grace. So this entire section of Psalm 90 is a showcase for grace. This is a place where our petitions are learned and our petitions are studied, and they all come out of asking God for that which we do not deserve, not based on our merits, but because of His grace. So because we know God is uh, uh, transcendent and man is transitory, because we know sin is tragic and life is temporary, then we should know that prayer is treasure. Prayer is a treasure to us. It's a delight to us because we understand the truth about God. We understand the truth about ourselves. The natural response that comes from that understanding is for us to plead for more grace. So here, in this prayer of Moses, we see a, a series of petitions uh, for grace that flow from the glorious realities that Moses has here in his mind. And they come to us this morning so that we might study them and so that we might apply them to our lives even today. But before we do that, let's look at the original reference point, the original readers, what they understood to see how these petitions first applied to them before we apply it to ourselves. And we've shared this in prior messages. Many people believe that the backdrop of this psalm, Psalm 90, was seen in the historical situation and context of Numbers 20. And you don't have to turn there, but we've talked about how Numbers 20 is a unique chapter in the Bible where you see the slaves of God, the Israelites, are wandering in the desert with Moses for 40 years, and finally they arrive at the desert of Zin, and there is severe drought. There's a lack of water throughout the entire land that the Israelites began to complain to Moses about, and they complained, and because of that, that, they, that Moses and Aaron had led them away from the security of Egypt, they had been slaves there, but now for some reason they see themselves as impoverished even more. And it's here that Moses doesn't do what God tells him to do. He taps on the rock twice and the water flows to the people even though God told him to speak to the rock. He's showing the people that he's boss and not Yahweh is boss. And then it's here in the same chapter in Numbers 20 at the very end of this wilderness punishment that Aaron, who also had tried to usurp Moses leadership at one time with Miriam. Now, he's not even permitted to go into the promised land like Moses, and he has to die at the mountain before they are led. So I, I give you all this because in one chapter, what you have here is desert wanderings for their rebellion, home for the, no home for the Israelites, a death sentence for rebellion, Moses' humility given over to pride, 
And you have God guaranteeing Moses that he will never, ever enter the promised land again. All of this, no place to dwell, life being cut short for those who he loves, and God triumphing over the rebellion of his own people, as far as we know, is the backdrop for Psalm 90. So with that in mind, we come to verse 13. With all of what I just tried to paint for you in terms of the context, verse 13 says, Return, O Yahweh, first petition here in this section, how long will it be, and be sorry for your slaves. In essence, what he's saying is, at some point in our desert wandering, it became clear to the people of God that you had gone away. We belong to you, and yet it feels like you have, have left us. Yahweh, the great I am that I am, the covenant-keeping God, it feels like you're gone. So please return to your slaves and show us your grace. When it came to the 40-year wandering, there was no reason to doubt that the Israelites felt abandoned by God without acknowledging their sin before God, without considering their own weaknesses, with complaining about the idolatry, the Israelites could feel as if maybe God, who keeps his promises, the the covenant-keeping God, had broken his covenant. So here in verse 13, Moses pleads with Yahweh before the people, and he pleads for God's grace to return as well as his compassion. Spurgeon said, as sin drives God from us, so repentance cries to the Lord to return to us. In other words, he's saying, please do this for us, O God, that what we cannot do for ourselves. We acknowledge that we are your slaves. We belong to you. You are ours and we are yours. We acknowledge that we don't even deserve to plead to you to help us. We know our sin. And so we just pray for your compassion, O God. We pray your compassion to be upon us. We know we've brought it on ourselves. We know the sin is responsible. We are responsible for what we have done. We know that you will come back because your promise is always fulfilled. But how long must we suffer? The fury of your anger over our iniquities come back to us, O God. So the first request that Moses calls for in this section in verse 13a is to return, come back, Don't stay away. And the second request is for Yahweh's sympathy for which he put them through, that God would be sorry, not to be sorry for doing what he did, but to be sorry for the pain that his children had to endure while he disciplined them. He doesn't call them children here, if you noticed in the psalm. He he doesn't use that word. He uses a Hebrew word for slave. Not bondservant, as some of your translations might say, but slaves, both here in verse 16. And he's trying to make a point by calling them slaves, namely that we belong to you. We are yours. We are a part of what rightly belongs to you. We are those whom you have chosen, whom you promised to keep. God makes his promises and keeps them no matter how long they had to wait. God is Yahweh and there is no one like him. And once you become God's slave, then you know that you belong to him and everything eventually will turn around because that is the heart of God towards those who want to please him. I want you to go real quickly with me to Deuteronomy 32 because it's in Deuteronomy 32 where we have what is classically known as Moses' song, uh, Deuteronomy 32. 36 through 43, I want to go through this very powerful portion of Scripture to see Moses singing of this same truth, the truth that he tells us that God cares for his slaves. So Deuteronomy 32, begin with me as you read in verse 36. Moses writes, For Yahweh will render justice to his people. And will have compassion on his slaves when he sees that their strength is gone and there is none remaining bond or free. And he will say 
Where are their gods, meaning their opponents, the rock in which they sought refuge, who ate the fat of their sacrifices and drank the wine of their drink offering? Let them rise up and help you. Let them be your hiding place. See now that I, I am he, and there is no God beside me. It is I who put to death and give life. I have wounded. It is I who heal. And there is none, no one who can deliver from my hand. Indeed, I lifted up my hand to heaven and say as I live forever, if I sharpen my flash and sword and my hand takes hold on judgment, I will render vengeance on my adversaries and repay those who hate me. This is a magnificent portion of Scripture, and Moses goes on to sing of other truths. But the part that you just heard Moses speak of, he is extolling the Lord, if you notice, for his perfect care over his people. That's the same Moses there that in our text, in Psalm 90, is also saying, to God to have feelings for his people. How odd that in one section Moses is saying, we know you care, O God, we know you care. You are always faithful. And here in Psalm 90, he prays for God to have grace. In other words, he knows God feels and cares and loves and has compassion and that God will render vengeance on those who are adversaries of Israel. And yet knowing those truths the way he does, Still, Moses begs for compassion that he knows God will provide. And so he petitions the Lord, listen to this, to make life like it used to be. We know who you are. Bring back to life, our life, a sense of normalcy. Bring back to us a time where the people of God trusted and followed you completely. And yes, strayed and sinned when we did from time to time. But overall, he's praying that the Lord would bring them back to a time where God had not yet consumed them in his anger. Then Moses has another request here in this group of petitions, petitions that we can use to learn from as we pray our own prayers. Finally come here to the petition in verse 14 of Psalm 90. In verse 14, he says, Oh, satisfy us in the morning with your loving kindness that we may sing for joy and be glad all our days. So Moses goes from begging for mercy, to now begging for satisfaction. Literally, satisfy us. The plea for God to be their satisfaction is a very humbling plea, if you would notice with me. Even the tone of how it was written brings a kind of attitude of desperation. They are desperate to be happy again. They are desperate to be right with God, to enjoy the blessings of God, to know God. This, Moses writes is how the saints are satisfied. That's how you and I should be satisfied. They are satisfied when they awaken from slumber because waking up in the morning, I thought of this this morning, of course, means that God has given you more time to accomplish His work. Because in the morning when you wake up, you are satisfied. When they understand that the sun came up without delay, without disaster, because God meant it to happen exactly in that way, and therefore satisfaction fills the heart because we comprehend that our entire life, as he says, is a part of God's hesed, his loving kindness, his, his tender mercy, his covenant-keeping love. Alexander McLaren Scottish pastor from years ago says the only thing that will secure lifelong gladness is a heart satisfied with the experience of God's love. This means that nothing will satisfy the human heart ultimately except God. Think of that. Nothing will satisfy the human heart ultimately except God. Do you believe that? Have you had evidence of that? Is that true for you? Because Moses says here, that the result of knowing God and being faithful to God is satisfaction. Moses says having a blissful man singing at the top of his lungs, talking and singing and telling others of why they are glad and why they have joy all the days of their lives, that is not some kind of just gleeful, silly desire. 
for more fun in this life. This is a heartfelt, deeply moving plea that reaches God's ears when the believer prays. And we see the seriousness of that in the next petition here, namely in verse 15. He says, make us glad according to the days you have afflicted us and the years we have seen evil. That is a pretty powerful prayer, if you notice with me. Notice on one side, there's a powerful kind of boldness in this request when he says, make us glad. O God of my creation, make me glad. Not just because of the greatness of that request, make us glad, because of the gravity of that request. Moses adds in verse 15, according to the days you have afflicted us. Now I want you to sense the vastness of this request. Oh God, make our entire nation filled with as much gladness as we had before we were afflicted. To the same degree that we have suffered pain from others, now grant that same degree of gladness to come to us. And then he adds some added clarification in verses 15b, and the years we have seen evil. Gladness and not only the affliction, but the years we have seen evil. I want you to remember Israel had seen many years of evil. After a series of rebellions against God by the Israelites, culminating in their refusal to enter Canaan, God refused to allow any of the present generation that even are in the earshot of Moses' prayer as he speaks, he refused to allow them to enter into the promised land except Joshua and Caleb. Forty years they traveled around. Forty years they had seen many years of evil. Listen to God speak. You don't have to turn there. Numbers 14, verses 29 through 34. Numbers 14, 29 through 34. Listen to God what he says concerning that day. Your corpses will fall in this wilderness. Even all of your numbered men, according to your complete number from 20 years old and upward, who have grumbled against me, Surely you should not come into land which I swore to make you dwell, except Caleb, the son of Jephana, and Joshua, the son of Nun. Your little ones, however, who you said would become plunder, I will bring them in so they will know the land which you have rejected. But as for you, your corpses will fall in this wilderness, and your sons shall be shepherds for 40 years in the wilderness, and they will suffer for your unfaithfulness until your corpses come to an end in the wilderness. According to the number of days which you spied out the land, 40 days, for every day you shall bear your guilt a year, even 40 years, and you will know my opposition. Numbers 14, 29 through 34. You probably haven't heard that in a long time. That's a uh, pretty stunning, isn't it? I mean, when you hear that, it's so alarming. The entire population that were adults from 20 years old and upward, with the exception of Joshua and Caleb, were forbidden to come into Canaan and died in the wilderness. Borrowing from one estimate, if you wondered about what that might look like, that means over 1,078,000 Israelites That's 600,000 men, 400,000 women, 45,000 Levite men, 33,000 Levite women, plus adults among the mixed multitude died in the wilderness as they wandered for 40 years. One million. And many of those were under 20 years old, just so you know about calculations, the initial census of those who themselves rebelled against God later as adults also might have been a part of that number. So these are the numbers, these are the years that we have seen evil that Moses is speaking of here in Psalm 90, verse 15. So imagine that at your dinner table conversation tonight. Look to see what the Lord has done to us. We have rebelled against Yahweh for 40 years. We've been unbelieving in our behavior for 40 years. We've been idolatrous and superstitious. For 40 years, we've been consumed by the same God who rescued us from being consumed by the Egyptians. And so now 
without any excuses for our sin, we come back and we ask God for what we know can only come truly from God, the same God that we sinned against. We come to grace. We need more grace, more unmerited favor can only come from him. I always want to say this. I've said it a few times. When I hear something like this, I never forget of the time my Jude, my, my third son, when he was a little, little boy, and he was playing around with the sink, and he had some hot water that he had turned on. He was going to burn himself, and as he was reaching for it, I slapped his hand, and I said, no. And he recoiled back into the uh, uttermost of the bathroom and didn't know what to do and started to cry, but he needed somebody, and so he came back to me. <laughs> and even in the moment, I thought, oh, my Lord, this is me. This is me and you. I sin against you and I recoil. I, want, I don't know where to go, but where else can I go? So I go right back to you for the comfort that I need. That's exactly what's happening here with the Israelites as well. Please notice no true prayer is, is without true need, true humility. And yet there's also no true prayer without this kind of open child to a father kind of response in trying to communicate to our maker. I know you have disciplined me, but I ask for your grace to return to you. So Moses is saying very, very openly, you are the one that allowed the years to be evil and the days to be harsh. You are the one that cannot let sin go without it being punished. And therefore, you are the one who broke us so that you could heal us. You're the one who inflicted the damage that brought on ourselves. And yet now, because of the blessing of prayer, that's why prayer is so necessary the damage that we brought on ourselves, now we come to you and approach your throne and we depend on your amazing grace to replace our pain and to fill up the reservoir that once held our affliction with as much happiness as it possibly can handle. This is humble boldness. Humble boldness. I like the psalmist in Psalm 119.75, when he says, I know, O Yahweh, that your judgments are righteous and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. In faithfulness. I don't have a, a skewed understanding of what you've done. I know exactly what you've done and still I return to you. But Moses isn't done yet. There's another petition coming from his pen. And this time, after asking for grace to number our days, to be sorry for our sins, to grant satisfaction to our souls, to, to allow ourselves to have gladness according to the evil that you have allowed us to suffer through, now he asks for generational witness. Generational witness to God's magnificence. Not just in the light of the generation that's before him that presently cannot go into the promised land, but he's asking in light of the generation who one day will go and experience the land filled with milk and honey. Namely, he prays now for the children, for the sons. And you see that in verse 16. Let your work appear to your slaves and your majesty to their sons. The request for God to allow his work to appear suggests that Moses is saying, we can't see your work now. Your majesty has been hidden from us. Your beauty and favor is hidden from us. So not only allow the greatness of your handiwork to appear to us, but let it be seen to our sons. Let our children and our grandchildren behold your majesty. Think about it. Just think about it. The generation before this psalm was written witnessed God's work in the plague sent to Egypt. They witnessed God's majesty in the parting of the Red Sea, the drowning of the armies of Pharaoh. The generation had seen pillar of fire by day and a pillar of cloud by, excuse me, fire by night and cloud by day. They saw, again, the physical manifestation of his glory and his magnificence. They saw manna from heaven come to them. And now God's hand did not seem to be manifesting to his slaves. And so Moses prays for grace again. 
for unmerited favor, for God to extend that same grace to their families, to be alive and worshiping God long after they fly away. Isn't that your heart? Isn't that the heart of every believer? I want my children, my sons, my grandchildren to know him and to know his majesty. And Lord, if I can see it while I live, how wonderful that would be. I was just speaking to Phil Webb's wife, and she was telling me about her son uh, who's now engaged, and, and they have some grandchildren there as well. <coughs> and she was showing me pictures like all proud grandparents do. And I'm getting ready. I just don't know when it's going to happen. But... Um, <laughs> And, uh, and as she's showing me all these pictures, she said, it was really apropos, she said, isn't that wonderful to be able to see your children raise their children in the fear of God? It's one thing for your children, as you know, to be around the dinner table saying, yeah, I'm a Christian, I believe, and, and you, you believe they're right, that probably is the case. And yet when you see your children teaching their children what you taught them about the Master, that is just a joy that is almost hard to describe. Regardless of the pain that we've suffered for our sin, regardless of the days you have declined for us on account of your fury over our iniquities, please, God, remember our sons. Please, God, remember our granddaughters. Please remember to show yourself faithful to our offspring so that they too might worship you and see how truly great you are. And then he ends the prayer with his final request, this last petition before the Lord, verse 17, namely, for the favor, the grace of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands, establish the work of our hands. One saint wrote, so long as we are here, we are required by him for something. Let us therefore find out what that is and do it While we do it, let us pray that God may establish it so it may remain to bless our posterity. The last petition is for our sons, for our children's blessing, for the end is the children and the future that consumes Moses as he writes. So much like the elders here at Grace Church, so much like our pastor, our, our consuming desire is for the children. Let our sons reach your promised land, even though we were not being able to go. And even though we did not arrive at this place that we could enjoy your promised land, Moses is saying, please allow our children to flourish because, again, the heart of the parent is always for their children. And that, of course, is always in us because it's always the heart of God as well. Protect our children. Highlight the sun for all generations. Once there was a wealthy man and his son who loved to collect rare works of art. They had everything in their collection from uh, Raphael to Picasso. They would often sit together and admire the great works of art that they had collected. And when the Second World War broke out, the son went to war. And he was very courageous and he died in battle while rescuing another soldier. The father was notified and was deeply grieved because this son was his only son. And about a month later, just before Christmas, there came a knock at the door and a young man stood at the door with a large package in his hand. And he said, sir, you don't know me, but I am the soldier for whom your son gave his life. He saved many lives that day and he was carrying me to safety when a bullet struck him in the heart and he died instantly. He often talked about you and your love for art. The young man held out his package. I know this isn't much. I'm not really a great artist, but I think your son would have wanted you to have this. And the father opened the package, and it was a portrait of his son painted by the young man. And he stared in awe at the way that the soldier had captured the personality of his son in the painting. And the father was so drawn to the eyes as if it was his own eyes because they were welling up with tears as he beheld the portrait. And he thanked the young man and he offered to pay him. And he said, no, sir, I I can never repay what your son did for me. It's a gift. The father then hung the portrait over his mantle. And every visitor came to his home. He took him to see the portrait of his son before he showed them any other of the great works that he had collected. Well, eventually the man died, and there was to be a great auction for his paintings. 
And many influential people gathered, excited over seeing the great paintings and having an opportunity to purchase one for their collection. And there on the platform set the painting of his son. And the auctioneer pounded the gavel. We will start the bidding with this picture of the son. Who will bid for the picture? And there was a silence. Then a voice in the back of the room shouted, we want to see the famous painting. Skip this one. But the auctioneer persisted. Will someone bid for this painting? Who will start the bidding? $100, $200. Another voice shouted with anger. We didn't come to see this painting. We came to see the Van Goghs, the Rembrandts. Get on with the real bids. But still the auctioneer concluded, the son, the son. Who will take the son? Finally, a voice came from the very back of the room. It was a longtime gardener of the man and his son. I'll give $10 for the painting. And being a poor man, that's all I could afford. We have $10 in the bid. $20. Anybody? $20. People were saying, give it to him for $10. Let's see the masters. $10 is the bid. Won't somebody bid $20? The crowd was becoming angry. They didn't want the picture of the son. They wanted the more famous paintings in their collection. The auctioneer pounded the gavel, going once, going twice, sold for $10. The man sitting on the second row shouted, now let's get on with the collection. The auctioneer laid down his gavel. I'm sorry, the auction is over. Confused, the crowd cried, what about the paintings? I am sorry, when I was called to conduct this auction, I was told of a secret stipulation in the will. I was not allowed to reveal that stipulation until this time. Only the painting of the sun would be auctioned. Whoever bought that painting would inherit the entire estate, <laughs> including the paintings. The man who took the son gets everything. Pretty powerful. Just as our earthly sons and our daughters mean the world to us, so it was with God. We want our sons to see God's majesty, and God wants us to see his son's majesty. And when you cannot pray this prayer of Moses unless you truly, truly understand these undeniable truths. And if you have kissed the Son and done it with all your heart. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Psalm 90, this song of Moses, this beautiful masterpiece in the midst of all the other Psalms. We ask that you would allow the teachings of this psalm, the, the realities that are undeniable to Moses be undeniable to us, that we understand our transitory nature, your everlasting eternality. We understand the severity of sin. We understand the fragility of life. And so we're driven to prayer. We're driven to pray for those things that we so desperately want and so desperately need. The top of all of them is your grace. And so we ask that you would extend your grace to us even this Christmas season, that this story would be in our hearts as we celebrate Christmas and the coming of the true Son of God, and that you would allow this prayer to act as a model for us as we pray to you in the days, weeks, and years to come. And we ask this in Christ's precious name. Amen.